Judges 8. We're going to look at 22 to 35. So we're going to tackle the rest of the, ta- the chapter this week. Um, as, you're, as you're looking there, I, w- I want to talk a little bit about breaking words down into their meanings. Um, we, we have a Greek word that's pronounced latria, that means worship. And so what we do in English is we, we take a word, that, like a, a word in, um, a lot of times it's Greek because a lot of our words are built off of the Greek language. Take a word that's got a, a root from the Greek language and we add another one after it. So we might, um, we might take something that means one thing and add the Greek word latria on the end and, and it becomes one word that means this is something that we worship. And so just as an example, idolatry is idol and latria, so it's idolatry. So I was just kind of doing a study of just some different words, looking through the meanings of different words that I wanted to share with you today as we are going to be talking about the objects of our worship. So we'll go one at a time. So if you take the word, the, the Greek word zoon, which means animal, and you make the word zoolatry, it means worship of animals or, or pets. Um, so if you're a pet lover, you have the potential to become someone who practices zoolatry if you love them that much. Um, you could get very specific. So animal is kind of an umbrella term, right? You could get very specific. If you wanted to practice onolatry, you would be worshiping donkeys because the Greek word anos means donkey. So onolatry is the worship of donkeys. One that uh, I have to admit I, I might run the risk of falling into is the practice of bibliolatry, because biblios is book, and bibliolatry is the worship of books, and well, if there's one area of our life that we have zero control over, or any, any kind of um, restraint over, it's walking into a bookstore. Um, we frequently will go into Barnes and Noble, and I'll say, we're getting one book, and I'm going to the bargain section, and we walk out with 10 books, most of them not from the bargain section. So, and so we might, might be bibliolatrists. I'm not sure what, how you make that a, a noun. Um, one that might be specific to what we see in scripture sometimes is angelolatry the worship of angels. The Greek word angelos is angel. And so we do see in scripture sometimes people bow down before angels and they say, they say, no, I'm a servant to get up, you know. Um, so if we were to see an angel face to face, we might do the same thing. Um, the opposite of angels would be maybe the worship of human beings, which is anthropolatry, because anthropos means man, and this is actually like, I stumbled across this as I was looking up these words. There's really a syndrome that they call celebrity worship syndrome, which isn't going to 
sound crazy to you because you see people all the time in our culture who obsess over celebrities, right? They might, it might be a specific celebrity, it might be a group of celebrities that are part of a TV show or part of a band or whatever it might be. But we have, Americans have an obsession with celebrities. We wanna dress like them, we wanna talk like them, we wanna be like them, we wanna, we'll do anything we can. We'll, we'll camp out for a week at some place just to meet them and get to shake their hand. And you know, the, the cheesy thing that we always, we always dramatize teenage girls as when they shake the hand of a heartthrob that's in a boy band or something, I'm never gonna wash my hand again, you know, like. So we do this, but they actually have termed this, it's such a problem that there's a thing called celebrity worship syndrome. So that's anthropolatry because it's the worship of of people. Now, before, don't move on to the next one yet. I want to give you a little bit of information. This one's my favorite out of the six I'm sharing with you. Saved it for last. Um, I'll tell you when to pull it up. The Greek word bardos is the Greek word for poet, okay? Um, and so there is a thing called bardolatry, and it's not the worship of poets. Normally, that's what we do. But bardolatry is not the worship of poets. It is actually the worship of William Shakespeare. <laughs> yes, apparently there is a thing called, called bardolatry that means the worship of William Shakespeare. Uh, he was, the word bard was a nickname for him because they called somebody, somebody called him the bard of Avon, I think, or, um, and so, because of his poetry, and so, but this word has been turned into, he's become so synonymous with the word bard that this word has been turned into not the worship of poets, but the worship of William Shakespeare. So, anyway, just a little bit of trivia. The next time someone asks you, hey, what does the, what does bardolatry mean? You'll be able to say, it's the worship of William Shakespeare. So, I've shared this with you because the text today, so all of Judges deals with this, but the text today is, I think, really just overflowing with idolatry. Um, and it's not that long of a text to be overflowing with idolatry, but it, but it is. And so I want to talk a little bit about the things that, the things that we sometimes allow to, to pull our devotion and our worship away from Christ um, and some things that we need to do to make sure that that doesn't happen. So let's look at our text, uh, Judges 8. If you have your place in 22 and you're able to stand, would you please stand to honor God as we read his word? All right, so Gideon has caught the two kings of Midian and put them to death. Um, and then we pick up a 22. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to, bear, to wear gold earrings. They answered, We'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. 
The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, and which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Thus, Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace 40 years. Jerubbaal, son of Joash, that's, that's the name the townspeople gave to Gideon, Jerubbaal, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Bereth as their god and did not remember the Lord their god who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jerubal, that is Gideon, in spite of all the good things he had done for them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, the things of your word that are good reminders to us of where our devotion should lie. So as we continue through the study of Judges, um, and as we tackle this text today, I pray that you would teach us and help us, God, to know what we need to do to guard ourselves from falling into the worship of anything other than you. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right. After I give you the first sermon note, you'll probably be able to figure out two and three. The first point in your sermon notes is the first offense of idol worship. Um, after being subject to the rule of other nations for so long, I think it would be somewhat natural that the Israelites would equate their deliverer with a king. Um, I, we, I think that's kind of human nature. We, we look to the person who delivered us and want them to you know, we continue to look to them for leadership. And so I think that would be kind of a natural thing for them to do. Um, so I'm, I'm not surprised that they asked Gideon to rule over them after he delivered them from the hand of Midian. That makes sense from a human perspective. The one who led you into independence probably has the potential to be a good leader in general. And then there could be some security for some time into the future if the leader's child follows suit and is like him. Um, but the problem with this kind of thinking is that the Israelites are viewing this from a human perspective. They're not viewing this from God's perspective or trying to see this from a perspective for, you know, uh, that's being guided and directed by the law and what they know of God as he's revealed himself to them over the course of time. Um, we learn in 1 Samuel, so this is for fast-forwarding in the timeline, but we learn in 1 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 7, 
that when people ask for a king to rule, when the Israelites ask for a king to rule over them, it's, it's a rejection of God as their king. This, this is where the people asked for a king and Samuel tried to talk them out of it and God said to Samuel, give them what they want. It's not a rejection of you. They've actually rejected me as their king. So what we see as we look at the text in our, our text today in, in Judges is that the people, um, we, we see their heart and, and at heart they are idol worshipers. And actually we probably all are because we've talked before about the, the sinfulness of the human heart. But rather than having, after God has delivered them, rather than having a renewed devotion to Yahweh, the God that, that has rescued them from Egypt and given them the land and rescued them from the hands of other oppressors time and time again, they place their hope instead in Gideon, who's a man. And so this is the first situation where we see um, in, our te in this text today um, idol worship. They've, they've, rather than putting their hope in the only one that can, can deliver them and who can bless them and who can, um, who can actually uh, give them the security that they want, the, the f make their fields and their animals and human wombs flourish and, and all the things that they're looking for, rather than putting their hope in God, who's the only one who can do that, they place their hope in this man who is, who's delivered them from the hand of Midian. So Gideon's response here indicates that Gideon knows, um, this, and this is something important for us to learn in life. He, he understands his role here. He understands that God called him to be the deliverer, God did not call him to be their king. And even in that, even in the delivery of them from the hand of Midian, he was only able to accomplish that, ta that task because God's hand was upon him, the spirit was upon him, the text tells us. So after such a long time of rejecting the Lord, Gideon knows that it's not his role to be their king. He, he has been called to one thing and he's done it, what the Israelites really need is not for him to step in and be their leader, but for, for them to renew their faith in the Lord. Here's the thing, like, you and I are going to run into this frequently in our life. When, when the crowd begins to praise you for something that you did or you said, or they start buttering you up to take some kind of an important role or an important position, that... If, you, if, if you've had that, you know that it's difficult to not get caught up in that and to not then desire to have some kind of influence over people or to desire some kind of power. Um, and we see that with leaders that are um, in the public eye all the time. Like once they get a hold of power um, or if they even get a little taste of what they could have if they were to you know, get a specific position, they don't. They don't like to let go of it, and they desire more and more. So it's really easy for us to get caught up in that, and that's what the, the Israelites are doing. They're, I mean, if you were asked to be somebody's king, would you not think, how great would it be if I were to be able to rule over these people? But Gideon, I think, here shows great self-control in the situation, understanding what his role is. 
And his role is not to be king. His role, God gave him one role, and his role's been fulfilled now. Um, there was a skit, when I was a youth pastor, I took my kids to a conference, and there was a skit that was done um, that has been something that I've used in life to remind me of the fact that God has called me to certain things and not to other things. Because there's lots of things that I would be like, you know, through my life, this would be really cool if I could do this, or this would be really a lot of fun, and I think I could really influence a lot of people for the gospel. But God calls us to specific roles. And so this skit was, there were four people. One was a represent, one represented God, and then the other three were people. And on separate occasions, so God would encounter one of them, and he would give them a specific gift to bless them. And so the first person he gave like a 12-ounce can of soda. That was his gift to them. And it was a blessing. And then that person ex exited the stage and the next person came in and God had an encounter with them and he wanted to bless them and he gave them this one, a 20-ounce bottle of soda. Same soda, but more. And it was a blessing. Third person God encountered, he gave them a two-liter of that same soda. And it was a blessing. And they were all thankful for the gift that God had given them. But then when they came on stage together and they started interacting with each other and they saw what the other ones had, the ones who had less, their gift was no longer good enough. And they wanted, and, and they didn't understand, God, why would you give that person more than you gave me? And the whole point of the skit was God had a conversation with them about this was a specific gift that I gave you. It was from my heart to yours, and it was something that, that I knew was good for you. And you're rejecting a specific gift that I gave to you because you want what I gave someone else. Gideon understands here, in the face of what could be a power grab, Gideon understands that's not my role. God called me to this, and my role has been fulfilled, and so I am now done. But the first offense here is that the people placed their hope in a man when God delivered them so that maybe so that they would see that they needed to renew their their walk with him. Second point, the second offense of idol worship. So Gideon after, after he says, no, I'm not going to be your king, he does make a request of them, and he says, I, I would like a, a gold earring from each of you, from all the, all the stuff you guys have gathered. Can you each just give me one gold earring? Um, and they were glad to do so because he had led them in battle, and he had been a good commander, and, and so obviously they wanted him to be his king. So they were, they were more than willing to, to throw in a gold earring to, to bless him. Um, the text tells us that it, the gold weighed up to seven, weighed 1,700 shekels. Now, depending on the size of a shekel at the time, so there's a little bit of leeway here, but in order for it to be something we can understand, that was anywhere between 35 and 75 pounds of gold. Um, and that's not counting all the other things that he got as plunder that he kept, like the purple garments of the kings and the chains that the camels wore and all that stuff. 
just the earrings that the people contributed, 35 to 75 pounds worth of gold. And with the gold, he fashions this thing called an ephod, and it was, that was the priestly garment that was used to judge and discern God's will. When God, when God passed on the law to his people through Moses, and he established the priesthood through Aaron, the ephod was a garment, and on it was encrusted these, uh, there were 12 jewels to represent the 12 tribes of Israel on the chest of the garment, and it was worn to discern God's will and to be a judge of the people when they would bring their disputes and things like that so that they could understand God's will. So Gideon makes this thing out of gold, that the, the gold the people gave him. Now, it's difficult to know. I, I don't know what he intended with it because the text doesn't really indicate. So I don't know what his purpose was in making it. But because the priest wore it as, um, as a way of seeking out the Lord's guidance, there are some people who have suggested that maybe Gideon intended to continue in the role of judge for the people. Not king, but the role of judge. Um, but there are some other indications that um, from scripture that might indicate that it was, it was made to be something that would become an idol. Um, Judges 17 and 18, those two chapters, in those two chapters, which we will get to eventually down the road, but in those two chapters, an ephod was associated with pagan idol worship. Um, earlier, we've already covered this, Judges chapter 2, verse 17, uses the exact same language that God, that the author of Judges uses here in our text, um, describing the Israelites as prostituting themselves um, to other gods. Chapter 2 talks about them prostituting themselves to other gods. And it's the same language in our text today um, as it calls, it describes them as prostituting themselves before this golden ephod. Um, so I don't know what his intention was, but whatever his intention was, it, it, the, the object that was cast in gold became an object of worship both for the nation as a whole, but also a stumbling block for Gideon's own family. Because it tells us that it became a snare to Gideon's family. So here's this man. You'll remember the very beginning of his story. God calls him to destroy an altar that his father had built. Do you remember that? God called him to tear down the altar to Baal that his father had built. And there was an Asherah pole next to it because they usually had them together. He was supposed to cut that down. So here's this man who at one time was destroying the altar that his own father had built to another god. And now he's created something with his own hands and his own creativity that's become a snare to his family and to the entire nation. So they fell into idol worship. Now, let me be clear here because I, I, I don't want to misrepresent this. Um, Gideon is not, he's not the one who caused them to worship this as an idol. He made it. It might have been something that helped or aided them in that, but 
the people were already idol worshipers at heart. So Gideon making it didn't, Gideon, making something doesn't make someone else worship it as an idol. So I don't want to misrepresent him here. It certainly didn't help, and it could have been something that aided them in that. But they were at heart already running after other gods. They would have turned anything into a recipient of their worship if they could have. So Gideon, uh, he did, I mean, he did make it easier for them to decide to worship it. But I don't want, I don't want to say that he's at fault because it's a choice they made. But because of things like this, this is the reason why God gave us the first and second commandment and the Ten Commandments. The reason he handed those down to his people and those first two commandments are because of things like this. The first one is you shall have no other gods before me. The second one is you shall not make an idol out of anything, um, right? And so he gives us those two commands because we have a tendency to worship things that we can see and we can touch and we can experience in some way. If, if we could see it and touch it and have some kind of ex like life experience with it, then we have a tendency to place it on idol status or God status. Um, let me give you just a quick um, church history lesson, and you may know this, but there was a disagreement in church history. Um, this is long before people had settled uh, the West, so like America wasn't in existence yet. This took place in Europe and um, Asia Minor at the time, um, but you had the the Western, the Western Church, and the it's Catholic Church, but the Western Church, which was in Rome, so Roman Catholicism, and you had the Eastern Orthodox Church in the East. And there was this disagreement, a butting of heads between the two because, over a thing called um, icons. So the icons were things that they had in the church buildings that were supposed to aid people in their worship. So the Roman church had statues um, of people from the Bible or, um, or angels or whatever. They had statues of people. They had portraits of people. They had all, all these things that, or, that were like decorations that, that made, made the, the sanctuary and their buildings very ornate. And those things were supposed to those images were supposed to help people to worship, okay? That's the church in Rome. The, the Eastern Orthodox Church said that, that sounds a whole lot like idol worship. And so it was called, um, they, they were called, since they didn't want the icons, they were called iconoclasts. Um, and the, the controversy was labeled sometimes like iconoclasts. Iconoclasm, iconoclasm, I can't remember. Um, but what they do is, well, there's this disagreement and, and there's a, a major, major like divide between the two churches because of it. Because they, they thought it was idol worship. Um, so, and, and they thought, and they considered that because of what God says in the second commandment. You shall, you shall not make any kind of idol, um, whether that's a, an image you, 
carve into something, an image you, you create or paint, or an Im today it would be an image you take with a camera, whatever it is. Nothing is to become an idol that you worship because it is human tendency to turn those things into worship. Um, one of the words I used at the very beginning was bibliolatry, and I said it's the worship of books. That's also a, that's a, a word that's also used for people in the church who tend to elevate the Bible to a place of worship or a thing of worship. Like, we're to worship the one who we learn about in the Bible, but we're not to worship this. This is, th I have a great love for the Word of God. Uh, this governs my whole life. But it's not this. It's the words inside it that, tell, that reveal to me the God that I worship. But there are Christians who are borderline or maybe not, maybe they step over the line of worshiping this thing, the book. And so bibliolatry is sometimes referred to the worship of the Bible as opposed to worshiping the one we learn about in the Bible because we have a tendency to take the things that are important to us and make them into idols. There's, I think it's a good thing actually that we don't have any of the original documents of any of the books of the Bible. Some people use that as a way of saying, well, how do you know it's true? And they question it and so they, they challenge you on that. But do you, re do you realize what we would do if we had the actual book of Isaiah or if we had the actual book of like Leviticus with the law, or if we had the actual gospels, like those things did exist at one time and we've made copies of those things and actually the more copies you have, the better the chance of it being reliable. But if we had the actual things still, you know that most people would be worshiping those things. Like if I had a hold of something like that, I would treat that thing like probably better than I treat my kids. I mean, like, I wouldn't want anything to happen to that. It would probably be enshrined on my wall. I, I know it would become an idol to me. God understands that, which is probably why he didn't allow us to still have it to this day. So we have a tendency to take the things that are important in life and worship them because it's something we can touch and we can see and we can experience and that is much easier to worship than a God that is invisible and we can't see him, we can't hear him um, audibly anymore, we can't smell him, we can't, you know, sit down and, and eat with him and walk with him like we did, like when Jesus was on the earth um, or when God was actually speaking to people audibly. All right, so that's the second uh offense of idol worship they they he created this thing and it became he put it up in their hometown and that's another thing like we know somebody that's a celebrity that we really love we find out oh here's their hometown here's their childhood home we go and we act like you know like we're, we're like little kids so excited to go see that stuff Gideon who'd become a national hero created this thing put it up in his hometown where he grew up and people flocked to it and they turned it into an idol um, for them to worship the third offense, though, um, 
as we move on to the next one, the third offense of idol worship. Uh, um, they, so they first place their hope in Gideon, and he refuses to be their king. He creates this ephod of gold. They turn that into an idol. And then we see at the end of our text that, that Gideon is still on this. He's really still at the top of their list in, in terms of their devotion. Um, they never really removed him from the throne of their hearts because when he died, you know, this is their king they wanted, right? This is their object of worship. He was their God in, in so, many, so many ways. When he died, their king and their object of worship and their idol was taken away from them. When the idol that sits on the throne of our hearts is stripped away from us, it's like there was an idol that sat on this throne in here. When that's stripped away from us and that throne is empty, it's like musical thrones. Like all of a sudden the music's playing, there's one seat left. And, but instead of like just two people, like in musical chairs, it's like thousands of things are, that are competing for our allegiance. And whenever the music stops, there's this major battle for who's gonna get to sit on the throne and control us. They're fighting for, our, those things are fighting for our allegiance, they're fighting for our devotion, they're fighting for our worship, and they compete with each other to get that spot that can rule our life. And guess who is the mastermind behind all of those things that are competing for our devotion? You can, you can shout it out. Satan, he's the mastermind behind the whole thing. In order that we are not misunderstanding and then finding ourselves off guard, Satan doesn't need us to consciously worship him or dabble in things that are demonic or directly oppose God to his face. He doesn't need he doesn't need to do something that's so obvious to us. There are those examples of people in Scripture that, that, that would describe people that maybe you, you might know. People today, um, as I read different stories, there are, there are examples of that where it's so blatantly obvious, like that you're, you're, you're running after Satan, you're worshiping Satan, you're doing the things, you're doing the bidding of Satan. But he doesn't need it to be a conscious thing where we understand that. It doesn't have to be so obvious. He just needs to cloud our perspective a little bit so that you don't recognize that what you, that, that you've made something else number one in your life instead of God. That's all it takes. And that's why it's so important in I will always stress this. We've talked about this a lot in the Acts series. We talked about it in the Holy Spirit study. So important to allow the Holy Spirit to teach us how to think like God. But it's also important, if we're going to protect ourselves against this, it's also important that we're a part of a church where there is encouragement, sharpening as iron sharpens iron between two people 
there's accountability. You know, I've said this before. There are people who think I can be a Christian and not go to church. Well, technically, yes. But you won't last long without the building up of the body, the accountability of the body, so that when you start to walk down the, you start to veer off the narrow path, they pull you back. Uh, without that stuff, you're going to have a really difficult time having God's perspective. Those are things that, in the Word, are things the Holy Spirit uses to teach us and to sharpen us and to mature us. So our walk with Christ really depends upon those things. All right, let me wrap up by saying this. Worship, I've had over the course of my life a number of different ways I define worship. And I think I think in certain contexts that it requires certain things to be said. But in this context, worship is the devotion that we give to whatever is the most important thing in our life. So as we discussed at the beginning, the number of things that we can make an idol in our life, those things, like, I gave you six. Those things are endless, though. I mean, I, I can and have before made an idol out of anything. My time can become the most important thing in my life to me. The things of life that I think I need, and they might be real needs I have, like food, shelter, clothing, love from people that are dear to me. But there are a lot of other things, too, that I think I need. I've convinced myself they're needs, and they're not. But even those things, the real needs or the false needs, those things can become an idol. A lot of Americans, and I would include myself in this, have made food an idol. And I don't mean because we're, they're starving. Because, and I include myself in this, many of us could shed some pounds. But we make food an idol. It's not healthy when you're waking up and you're eating breakfast and you can't wait for lunch and dinner. I, a friend of mine. So, What matters most to God is what should matter most to us. Like that's how we have his perspective. We find out what means the most to him and we we make we we imitate that, we mirror that in our own life. Sadly though, we reverse that. We really are most concerned about the things that we want to be concerned about and then we convince ourselves that we're putting God first because surely since it's so important to me, that's what God wants. And God is really concerned about two things. All of the scripture can be summed up in this, I think, in terms of what God is, what God desires. He desires his glory, and he desires what is best for us. So, I'll leave you with this, uh, a test to, de to determine whether or not you have an idol in your life. I've shared this with you before, but worth worth repeating. If if you're willing to sin to get it, 
if, if, you, if you are willing to sin in order to obtain this thing that you want, then it's an idol in your life. And along with that, another test is when you don't get it, if your response to not getting it is sin, then it's an idol. You've made that thing more important than the Lord in your life. And the Israelites, sadly, did not have many times in their history where they understood that. They were constantly running after the things that were not of God and sinning to get them or sinning because they didn't get them. So uh, that, that's, that's a test. If you're willing to sin to get it or if, you're, or if you sin in response to not getting it, it's an idol. And I just want to make sure that we are people who are not running after those things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you and you alone are our God. And as we, as we seek to know you and as we seek to grow and as we live in this world that's fallen with the many things that our hearts run after, um, I, just, I pray that you would give us a desire to be pleasing to you, a desire that is so much greater than any, anything that sin can do to entice us. Let our desire for faithfulness be stronger than that. May your Holy Spirit give us your perspective. May we be a part of the church where we're always looking into your word to learn your perspective, where we're always holding each other accountable and not just greeting each other saying, how you doing? I'm fine. And you move on. But investing in each other's lives so that we can hold accountable, we can encourage we can build up and we can strengthen, sharpen each other. Most of all, God, give us a passion for your glory. Because your glory will shape. Your glory, the desire in our heart for your glory will shape the desires of our hearts for our life. We're thankful mostly for Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. And for the third day when you raised him back to life. It's in his name.